We've read the passages for our text words concerning the sin offering from the book of Leviticus. And as we approach the preaching of God's word, let's look again to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we cry with the publican on the Temple Mount, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we pray this corporately, God, be merciful to us sinners. We praise you for your revelation to us in your word to reveal to us the comprehensive nature of our sins by which we're so deceived. And we thank you for the comprehensive remedy that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cleansing of sin. We thank you for the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we pray now as your people in the preached word, would you grant the blessing of your spirit to give illumination for us to understand and to give spiritual life for us to be enlivened unto the truth of the gospel and that we may repent of sin and that we may look to Jesus Christ. And we pray this for the building up of your saints and the salvation of sinners, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sin offering that we've just read about in the book of Leviticus deals with unintentional sin. We read that in chapter 4 in verse 2, where he says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, and then he gives the remedy. This is unintentional sin. So we'd ask this morning, you could ask yourself, if I realize that I have sinned by accident, number one, is it even sin? If I didn't mean to do it, is it even sin? If it is sin, am I responsible for it? If I didn't mean to do it, am I responsible? And we could ask thirdly, if I didn't mean to sin, is it really that serious of a sin? it was accidental. This is what this passage deals with, this kind of sin and the remedy for it. To help us think through this and the questions we've just raised about unintentional sin, let me give you an analogy to think through. Back in 2012 and 2013, when my wife Lydia and I lived in the village of Savunga with the Yupik Eskimo peoples of St. Lawrence Island and the Bering Strait in Alaska, We learned that on that island, back in the 50s and 60s, the Department of Defense had established a U.S. Air Force station at the Northeast Cape. They operated there for years, and in 1969, they packed up and left the island. And when the U.S. Air Force left the island, they left behind massive amounts of toxic waste, radioactive materials, Materials for chemical weapons, and they left behind cancer-causing agents such as PCBs. For many of these chemicals, they dug big holes and buried them and just put a fence around it, but the chemicals and toxins leaked into the local water source. The Yupik Eskimos there on the island have lived there for 3,000 years, and largely they live off of subsistence hunting and fishing. They hunt and fish for most of what they eat. They live off the land. And since the U.S. Air Force, in its carelessness in leaving, polluted their 
fishing grounds, polluted the grazing grounds for the Eskimos reindeer there. Skyrocket, uh, the cancer rates have skyrocketed and birth defects and illnesses caused by these toxins and pollutions. The people have asked and have put pressure on the Department of Defense to clean up the mess and they came and the efforts ended in 2014 and they were still incomplete. They, they did not fully clean up the toxins. The, the land is still polluted, the fishing waters are still polluted in some of the areas there. And as you think through this, and, and thinking through it even more personally, of, of how many people have died of cancer most likely caused from those toxins, the last day that we spent there in Alaska before flying out to come back home, I was there for the passing away of one of the dear village elders, Morris, who had died of cancer. It may have been caused from this pollution. Now you can ask yourself about about this scenario. Did the Department of Defense have any responsibility? Did those U.S. Air Force Station leaders have any responsibility in what they did there with that pollution? Do they have any owing of reparation towards the people to clean up and to get rid of that mess? Well, I think anybody in their right mind would answer that they do. Even if they didn't mean to do it, even if it was unintentional, you can see the far-reaching effects of it. And you can see how that they bear responsibility for their actions, even unintentional actions. Well, this is how it is with sins covered by the sin offering here in these passages of Leviticus. This sin or purification offering. Just like those toxic chemicals polluted St. Lawrence Island, the sin of the Israelites in the camp spiritually polluted God's holy space. Remember, God has come to live with them. This is the theme of the book of Leviticus. God has set His tabernacle among the people, and He lives there, and His glory is manifest among them in covenant blessing. But it's dangerous for them, and it's absolutely impossible without sacrifice because their sin defiles and pollutes God's holy space, and it must be purified. This sin offering can also be called a purification offering. We could still think about unintentional sin and its effects. And I know we may struggle to really think it's that serious. Is it really that serious if I didn't mean to sin? Well, consider what Paul said to the Corinthians. And I submit to you that one aspect among one party of sinners who committed the worst sin that's ever been committed in all of human history was an unintentional sin. The crucifixion of the Son of God incarnate. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.8, speaking of the mystery of the gospel, he said, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Is the crucifixion of the Son of God, was that a serious sin on part of Pilate, the Roman ruler 
one of the most, it's the most serious sin ever. And yes, Pilate's part in it, remember, Jesus said, he that delivered me to you has the greater sin, implying that Pilate's part in it was a a lesser sin, lesser sin than the Jews. But yet, what a sin it was. That even was an unintentional sin in some respects. And so this sin offering or purification offering teaches us that even our unintentional sins cause moral pollution and must be purified by the blood of Christ. And I implore you today, dear Christians, To hear this message in a gospel context. Hear it in Christ. And I remind you that for you, dear Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're no longer under condemnation. God does not condemn you for your sins. He already condemned Christ at the cross for all your sins. So God doesn't condemn you. But I remind you, God does condemn your sin. And you do too. And that's exactly what it means in 1 John 1, 9 that we read this morning. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we're marking a line in the sand and we're stepping over onto God's side, agreeing with God against our own sin, condemning our own sin. And though we ourselves are not condemned, even our least sin as we confess in our confession of faith, even our least sin is worthy of eternal damnation. And we agree. And we confess it to God. And this helps us in that. And I ask you to hear this, being mindful of the great value of it for your soul, to help your soul. As we read in 1 John 1-7, as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is part of that Spiritual light that God gives you, the light of His law to expose your sin and to help you turn from it and find and experience the cleansing and purification of it in Christ. All of us as Christians, to some degree, at all times in this life, all of us are like the emperor with no clothes. You remember the story where the emperor was prancing around in front of everyone and they had flattered him to tell him he was wearing this beautiful garment, but really he was walking around naked and when he realized that he was horrified and he ran away in shame. To some degree, all of us, when you look back, look back at last week, look last year, look the year before, and you realize there were sins I didn't know at the moment, but God revealed them to me, and I have repented and am repenting, and thank God for His mercy. It's God's mercy to reveal to us our spiritual nakedness that we may put on Christ. It's God's mercy to humble our pride. It's God's grace to us as Christians to expose hidden sin. And we ought to pray for this as the psalmist in Psalm 19.12. Who can understand his errors? Same Hebrew word here for this unintentional sin that we read of in this sacrifice. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. David's not praying that God will cleanse him from faults that are secret from others but that are hidden from him himself. 
We have unintentional sins that we commit daily that we don't even realize. Oh, God, reveal them to us is our prayer. And this helps us in that. And we confess this in our confession of faith concerning divine providence in chapter 5 and paragraph 5. That the most wise and righteous and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifest temptations and corruptions of our own heart. Reminded in scripture teaches us that God allows us in his providence to fall into sin. You can see this with Simon Peter. When he cursed and denied our Lord thrice. But God has a good end and a good purpose for we're reminded in our confession that God does this to chastise us for our former sins. Or to discover unto us the hidden strength and corruption and deceitfulness of our hearts. That's part of the reason in God's providence He allows us to fall into sin as Christians. Is to discover these hidden sins. And in this, that we may be humbled. And so to raise us to a more close and constant dependence for our support upon himself. And to make us more watchful against all future occasions of sin. And for other just and holy ends. So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. This is not a morbid and negative message The fact of the guilt of unintentional sin. Oh no, it's the grace of God in Christ to you, dear Christian, as He sanctifies you. And to you, dear sinner, as He opens your eyes. Oh, may open your eyes to show you how sinful you are and what a wonderful Savior Christ is. It reminds us and humbles us of our own pride. Exposes hidden sin and exposes our sin and our remaining self-righteousness. We might say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a papist. I'm reformed. I don't have any self-righteousness. I'm not Roman Catholic. I'm a reformed Protestant. I don't, I don't have any self-righteousness left in me. Oh yeah, we've still got those evil seeds of self-righteousness that by God's grace we need to root out. And you know it when you feel offended at the preaching of the word. We ought to be like Spurgeon said. If somebody says something bad about you, your response ought to always be, if you only knew how bad I really was, you would speak far worse. You don't even have the ability to say how bad I am. That should be our response. But we're offended and that reveals self-righteousness. And it's like Paul said in Romans 7. Sometimes we read it like this. Oh, wretched man that I was. No, Paul says, the apostle, the holy apostle says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, Christian, you still have so many wretched, even unintentional sins that need to be exposed and repented of. And God in His grace is delivering you from that body of death and is sanctifying you through this word. And He's doing it to remind us of our need of Christ so that you may more firmly cling to Christ like a sick patient who is indebted to his healing doctor the more you realize the danger of that sin uh, the danger of that illness and how it could kill you but the doctor has healed you the more you will rejoice the more you will listen to him the more you will appreciate him the more we see our sin exceedingly sinful the more we'll see the beauty of Christ and cling to him and treasure him 
and love righteousness that he loves and hate the sin that our dear Savior hates. So with this in mind, our thought today concerning this sin or purification offering is simply this. What if I didn't mean to sin? I want to give you four things to do, four things that you must do when you realize that you've sinned unintentionally. First of all is recognize the exceeding sinfulness of it. Recognize the exceeding sinfulness even of unintentional sin. You can see it in this passage, the the sinfulness of this sin by its causes. What causes an unintentional sin? Well, there are three things. This sin can happen by omission. Omission is when you simply don't do what ought to be done. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, he named some things that they had done that they should have done. But he said, you should not have left the other undone. A sin of omission is like the child at home that's supposed to take out the trash. And he sits on the couch and doesn't get up and take out the trash. It's not like he threw a rock through the window. That would be a sin of commission. He just simply sat back and didn't do what he was supposed to do. And we read about this in chapter 5 and verse 1. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. This isn't talking about somebody going around using their words to break the third commandment and use the name of the Lord in vain. It's talking about when you hear something that's untruthful, And you should have said something, you didn't say anything. That's a sin, and it needs to be purified by blood, this passage teaches us. Another cause of this sin is imprudence, lack of prudence. Prudence is using all the means that you can in the present to prepare for the future. And we know this because... When he speaks of unintentional sin, it's this, this Hebrew term is not used very many times in the Old Testament, but where you see it time and time again is later on in the Pentateuch when it's talking about involuntary manslaughter. There are two men out in the woods with their axes, they're chopping wood. The dude's axe handle or axe head flies off the handle and it kills his buddy. That man has committed unintentional manslaughter. It was by accident. He wasn't fighting him. He wasn't trying to kill him. It was an accident. That's where this term for error or unintentional sin comes up over and over again. And remember how God set aside the cities of refuge where that manslayer could flee and the family could not take vengeance on him. But still, he was guilty of manslaughter. And if you've worked with an axe, you know that if you pay attention and you maintain that equipment, you can tell when the axe head is getting loose and you have got to soak it in water so the wood will expand. You've got to drive wedges into it. I remember seeing my grandpa doing that growing up. You've got to exercise prudence to plan ahead. And if the guy would have done that, in all likelihood, the manslaughter wouldn't have happened. It's caused by imprudence. It can be caused by carelessness in the moment. Carelessness in the moment in act, what we do. We read about this in chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. 
concerning what a person touches, human uncleanness or animal uncleanness, it says there, he shall also be unclean and guilty. We'll read more in detail about what he means by these uncleannesses later on in Leviticus. But it's an accidental, careless act in the moment. And it renders them guilty. And our unintentional, careless sin in the moment renders us guilty. You can think about it like this with your children. And this is not, this is not uh, something that's happened around our house, but it very well could have. But imagine if one of your young children comes into the house screaming and crying. They've got a big uh, bruise, a, a big pump knot on their head. What happened? You find out the older sibling was out there and got a hold of the dog chain and was swinging around like a helicopter a, a foot from their younger sibling's head and it whacked them right in the head. Okay, was it unintentional? Let's just say it was. Let's just say there was no malice to it. Okay, it's unintentional. But you shouldn't have been doing that. You should have been more careful is what you tell your child, isn't it? That's how it is with this sin unintentionally by carelessness. It's kind of like this. We, we all agree that unintentional sin renders us responsible. It's kind of like if you were in the back lobby and somebody's walking by. And you're careless and and you trip them. They trip over your foot. You weren't watching where you're going. What do you say? What do you say that dear man or lady, if they fall down on the ground? I'm sorry, right? Well, when you say you're sorry, you're admitting you did something wrong. And then what would you do? You would help do what you could to help pick them up. Yes, it happened unintentionally, but it was carelessness that could have been prevented if we were more careful, and therefore it is a sin, and it is something that renders us guilty. But it's not just carelessness in act, but carelessness in speech, what we say. We read that in 5.4. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. So what it's expressing is something like this. You, you, say, uh, you say to your friend, yeah, I, I promise you I'll... Uh, I'll bring that load of firewood over your house tomorrow. Then you forgot you have a doctor's appointment and you're you're in doctor's offices all all day tomorrow. It's it's impossible for you to do it. But you promised you were going to do it. Well, that promise due to carelessness that you couldn't keep, that's sin that needs to be atoned for. That's what this passage is teaching. And Ecclesiastes mentions this in Ecclesiastes 5, 5, and 6. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Even an unintentional, mispromised vow, if we double booked, double scheduled, or whatever the case may be, or spoke something that's impossible for us to do, and we have to go back on our word, that kind of thing is sin. And he says here that it renders them guilty. That's the causes of this sin. 
There's also two effects of this sin that shows us the exceeding sinfulness of it. The effects of unintentional sin. You've heard this modern myth today. You've heard people say, well, my sin's not hurting anybody else. That's never the case. Sin always defiles ourselves and others. And it pollutes and defiles God's holy space here in this context of Leviticus. It defiles man. Sin defiles man. Just as much as that toxic waste defiled St. Lawrence Island and the fishing waters, sin brings moral pollution. Scripture teaches this in passages like Hebrews 12, 15, when he warns of Esau and he says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Our sin pollutes not only ourselves, but it defiles and pollutes others. It pollutes God's holy space and We know that this is the main point of the purification, the ceremonial purification in Leviticus. And we see an example of it in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. It tells us of the high priest, and he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. It wasn't just the people that need to be atoned for and purified. It's even the, the furniture And the instruments of the tabernacle, the furniture of worship that need to be atoned for because the people's sin has polluted and defiled it. He says he shall make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood with it on his finger, with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. The fact that Sinners lived in the presence of the holy God in the camp of Israel meant that they were polluting and defiling God's holy space. And these sins need to be purified. Now we know today, under the new covenant, there are no holy spaces on earth. Zero. None. There is no holy temple where there's a building where you can say, well, there is the presence of God in a special way like they could say in this day at the tabernacle or later in the temple. There are no holy spaces in that regard. But there is a temple of God, and that is God's holy space. And you know what it is? It's you collectively as a congregation. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 17. He says that the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You, congregation, are God's sacred, holy space. And we all need to be cleansed and purified by the blood of Christ because if, if one arises who brings division and defiles and destroys the temple of God, the church, Paul warns here, if anyone defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, whose temple you are. Do you see how much we need this purification of the blood of Christ, even for our unintentional sins that pollute ourselves and others and God's holy space. The effect of it is defilement, but also death. We'll see this later on in Leviticus 10. We'll see men struck dead 
for what was most likely unintentional sin, but they were careless in the service of the tabernacle. We'll see this in places like Romans 6 where Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. And in the passage that we read, we read in 5.11 that when they offer flour for the poor, they're not to add incense to it, frankincense, they're not to add oil to it. And this speaks of the blandness of of sin, the dissatisfaction of sin. And it reminds us that sin can only bring death. So recognize the sinfulness of it. Secondly, take responsibility for it. Own it as sin. When you realize you sinned and didn't mean to, own it as sin. Don't be like these modern corporations where they they come out with a press release after some big scandal. There were people that that lost their entire retirement benefits. There are people who are bankrupted. There are hundreds and hundreds of families left destitute because of this corporate scandal. And they come out and they make a confession like this. Mistakes were made. They put it as lightly as they possibly can. They don't even refer to it in the active, I made a mistake. That'd be a little bit better. They put it in the passive and they just say mistakes were made. Okay, let's grant that. Let's go ahead and put it as lightly as we possibly can and think about any accidental sin that you've ever committed and say, well, mistakes were made. Even those mistakes are worthy of eternal damnation because they're sinful and guilty before God. That's exactly what this passage is teaching us. And we must own that and confess it to God, just like Proverbs 28 tells us, 28.13, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Take responsibility for unintentional sin. Do this each as individuals. We read about this in 4.2. Speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally. We read about it in 427, if any of the common people sins unintentionally and does something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, each of us must own and repent of our particular unintentional sins. But not only that, we must do it corporately as a whole congregation. We read in 413. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. We as a congregation have congregational sins. This is even more serious than even our individual sins. Just like team misconduct. If, if a ball team commits misconduct. You've seen before where a baseball field breaks out into a fist fight and the teams rush the field and they're, they're hitting one another and, and fighting each other. That's far worse when the team does that. The team misconduct is far more serious than if just one player acted like that. And the, the penalties, the repercussions, the effects of it are worse. And I remind you that churches, particular churches, including ours, have prominent characteristic sins 
And we ought to know those sins and we ought to confess them to God corporately in prayer and ask for God's forgiveness. This was true of the churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 when our Lord Jesus addresses those different churches. Ephesus had their love that had grown cold. They, They had their waning love. The Laodiceans had their lukewarmness. The other churches had their particular corporate sins and these we must confess before God. Not only as individuals and as a whole congregation must we own responsibility for our sins, but also as leaders. We read in 4.22 of all rulers or leaders in Israel, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally, it tells us. Now in our context, this could be anybody from a father in a home to a church officer. But I remind you that every one of you are accountable to God, not only for how your sin affects yourself, but how it affects others that you have influence on. I remind you, older siblings, you big brothers and big sisters, your younger siblings look up to you, you'll give an account for how you lead them and what kind of example you provide for them. Father in your home, it's, it's sin if any of our family members sin, but you as a father are more responsible and it's more serious. We see it also here with the priest in 4.3. If the anointed priest, that is the high priest, if you study this language, it's talking about the high priest. If he sins, and you'll notice the cost of it was a bull. This is the same price for the entire congregation if they sinned. If one high priest sinned, he had, to, he had to bring that same sacrifice. It's showing that the sin of leaders is more serious than the sin of the common people in this passage. On St. Lawrence Island, the U.S. Air Force leaders, Department of Defense leaders that left behind that toxic dump, they're more responsible for it. An officer in uniform is more responsible than a civilian. Imagine it like this. Have you ever seen somebody staggering down the street drunk? I guarantee you have. Well, have you ever seen a police officer in uniform staggering down the street drunk? You see the difference? I saw that two different times overseas. One time in India, there was a drunk police officer in uniform that staggered in front of our taxi cart and we just about hit him. Then he was cussing us and then staggering across the street. In Mongolia, I saw at a gas pump there outside of Hatgal Village, a drunk police officer arresting a drunk driver. And the drunk driver was saying, you can't arrest me, you're drunk too. If that would have just been a drunk man staggering down the street, I probably wouldn't even remember it all these years later. But I remember it so clearly because it was so shocking. It was so unbecoming of the official office that he held and the uniform that he wore. And this is something of what it is when a church officer sends a deacon or a pastor or any kind of leader. We bear greater responsibility. And this is why Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, concerning the unfaithful servant who was beaten with many stripes and then some with less stripes he said for everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required
take responsibility for unintentional sins. Third, receive Christ who is the only purification for sin, including unintentional sins. Remember the purpose of Leviticus is to point the people through types and shadows of the sacrificial system to point them to Christ and to hammer home this truth that unholy man cannot live with a holy God except by way of substitution and blood atonement. And all of this points ahead to Jesus Christ. And in our analogy of that incident on St. Lawrence Island, where those two Yupik Eskimo villages are, what if the men of the village of Savunga where we lived, and the village of Gamble across on the other side of the island, what if those men of the village would have gone out and somehow been able to clean up all of that toxic waste, somehow been able to purify the land again at the cost of their own lives. It would cost them their lives for the exposure, but then the rest of their people could live in a pure environment again. Well, infinitely more so and spiritually, this is what Christ did for us at the cross. As He went there to the cross, taking all of our sins and making atonement and making purification for us, for our sinful defilement, for our sinful pollution. As Hebrews 9.12 tells us of Christ, that not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered into the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And as we read in 1 John 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin, including intentional and unintentional sin. Christ is a substitutionary purification. We read this in 4.4 where he said, He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. You know from our study thus far, the sinner deserved to die, but instead his sins are transferred, his guilt is transferred, his pollution is transferred to that sacrificial animal and the animal dies in his place Just as Christ at the cross died in our place and you lay hands on Him by faith and trust in Him and God counts all of your sinful pollution as transferred to Christ at the cross and renders you clean by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. He's he's the substitute for polluted and polluting sinners. And I remind you that in yourself you're guilty, but He's innocent and without blemish. And never once in his entire life did Christ commit one sin, not even one unintentional sin. He's your substitute, you who trust in him. You're defiled and polluted by sin, but not Christ. Hebrews tells us he is holy and harmless and undefiled. And higher than the heavens. And he's yours. You and yourself are an offense to God. You're offensive to God. Just like that 
that toxic pollution, that radioactive material, you would never want that dumped in your backyard, would you? You would never want that dumped into your living room or into your drinking water. It would be so offensive. Get it out of here. Sin is offensive to God, and you and yourself as a sinner are offensive to God, but not Christ. He's well-pleasing to God. God receives you in Him, you who trust in Christ. In yourself, you're rejected by God for your sins, but in Christ... You're accepted. In yourself, you're shut out from God's holy presence. But in Christ, you're welcomed in forever. He is the substitutionary purification for unintentional sins. He's the cleansing purification for our sins. And just as the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood, and it would reverse the sinful pollution, it would purify the area that he sprinkled when we read this in the hebrew it's it's literally something like this this sin and purification offering it's literally something like the the de-sin offering the unsin offering remember years ago sprite the uncola well this sacrifice is the unsin it expunges our sin it decontaminates the area of our sin it purifies for our sins This is what Christ does for us by His blood. It's like Geronimo said years ago, that Apache war chief in the late 1800s when he was a prisoner of war and he'd been hearing the gospel preaching of the Dutch Reformed missionaries in Lawton, Oklahoma. And one day he mentioned to one of the missionaries, he said, I'm old and I walk alone in the dark. I'm old and full of sins and I walk alone in the dark. But I hear you missionaries have a way to get sin out of the heart. And I want to take that better road and hold it till I die. When he heard the gospel, he got the impression God has a way to get sin out of the heart. Those sins that haunt you, that guilt that haunts you, that keeps you up at night, that you wake up thinking about in the night, that seems to follow you everywhere, that you can't get rid of. God has a way of purifying of sin. And it's the only way, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Him. And now, just as that priest would sprinkle the curtain of the holy place with holy blood and purify the entrance of that priest into the holy place, just as these sacred spaces were marked off by holy blood. And the priest could enter in without fear. You who trust Christ have been sprinkled by His own blood and purified. And you can enter in without fear into the very presence of God. And you have been marked off as God's holy, sacred property. Marked by the holy blood of Christ. With all your sins reversed. All your sins wiped clean. Sin is unsinned. It's expunged by the sacrifice of Christ. As Christ purges away the pollution of sin, as we read in 4.12, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. There the ashes are poured out. Or where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. 
just as much as they would carry that bull, take that bull outside the camp. They would take, take the leftover parts and everything out there and burn it all up. Even so, Hebrews tells us of our Lord Jesus referencing this text in Leviticus. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. See our Lord Jesus as he goes outside the gate of Jerusalem to shed his blood to purify us from our sins. And as God's people... This teaches us and reminds us that all our sins, just like that whole bull and everything was burned up outside the camp, all of our sins have been annihilated. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west. God says, and your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. It's kind of like when you go camping, and I know on the Appalachian Trail and the uh, Appalachian Mountains back east, there's signs up when you go in there backpacking. It says, leave no trace. Whatever you brought in, take out. You burn up your trash or you carry it out with you. You leave no trace. Well, Christ left no trace of your sins, dear believer. They've all been purified and washed away and carried away. And as the songwriter put it, sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This teaches us as Christians to hate and to banish sin, just as that offering, the, the bull and the purification offering here had to go outside the gate, as our Lord Jesus had to go outside the gate to suffer for us, symbolizing the carrying away of our sins. Oh, dear believer, put away sin. Hate it and banish it. Don't let it live with you. Put it out. Put it away. And have nothing to do with it. And it also teaches us to be ready to endure persecution. This is what Hebrews said about Christ going outside the gate like that bull. Hebrews 13, 12-13, as Christ goes outside the gate to suffer for us. He says, therefore, let us go forth to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. You might be cast out of your job. Some of our brothers already have. I could name a number of men in recent years because of this sodomite insanity in our, so, uh, our society today. Men who have lost their jobs over the years and been forced out. You might be forced out of your family. You might be forced out of society. But if you do, remember you're going outside the camp to Christ and He'll be there with you. And we're taught to endure it. And we're taught to have hope. Because in heaven, dear believer, you'll never be shut out again. You'll never go outside the camp again. You'll never be banished again. And that's what Revelation tells us in chapter 21 of that city of heaven. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And there shall be no night there. You're heading for a place where not only will you never have to banish sin out again, there will be no more sin, you'll never be banished again. You'll be home. Our Lord Jesus is an effectual purification. This is a full and effectual purification for sin. On St. Lawrence Island, the Department of Defense finished 
put square, uh, scare quotes around finish. They finished the cleanup in 2014 and left, but they didn't clean all the mess up. It's still defiled and polluted and toxic. But our Lord Jesus Christ absolutely finished and effectually finished our redemption and purification in His cross work, in His death and resurrection and ascension and session. We saw this when the priest sprinkles the blood of this offering seven times. Seven, the number of completion. Christ has completely purified us from our sins. We saw that in chapter 4 and verse 17. And we've read it in Hebrews 9 at 12 that Christ with His own blood has obtained eternal redemption for us. It's eternal. It's irreversible. Cannot be taken away. And just as they sprinkled this blood on the horns of the altar, horns signifying power, this is a full powered cleansing from all the guilt of your sins. Just like the clay pot after the ceremony, that clay pot would be smashed as we read about. Or if it was a brass pot, it would be scoured and cleansed. This reminds you that. Your sins have been put behind you. It's, it's a done deal. Your pollution and defilement by sin and being not able to live in God's presence, that's behind you. God's put your sins away in Christ. And again, we hear this glorious promise in shadow form when we read it again and again throughout this passage in 420 and he shall do with the bull as he did with the sin offering thus he shall do with it so the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them to you who turn from your sins to Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven you and you do have Christ as your atonement But he's not only an effectual purification, this is an applied purification. You must have Christ, you must have the blood of Christ applied to you by faith or it won't do you any good. I speak especially to you who are still in your sins. The offerer here must confess his sin. He must Trust in Christ through this type and shadow of the sacrifice who is offered for Him. He must appropriate the sacrifice for Himself. And He must, as we've read in the book of Hebrews, you must have your conscience cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. This is what Christ does the moment you trust in Him. Now I invite you, dear sinner, to come to Christ and be purified by His blood. No matter how polluted, no matter how defiled, He'll cleanse you. Fourth and lastly, as soon as you realize you've sinned, even an unintentional sin, You say, well, I sinned, but I didn't mean to sin. Fourthly, repent of it. 
repent, turn from that sin to Jesus Christ. And just as Paul tells us throughout the New Testament to put off and to put on. Concerning unintentional sin, when you realize you've sinned, put off carelessness. Carelessness in the moment, that's one thing that leads to unintentional sin. And as the Corinthians, in those seven ingredients of true repentance that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence or carefulness it produced in you. Carefulness is an ingredient of repentance. Oh, Lord, help me to be more careful not to commit that sin is our prayer. Put off carelessness and put on diligence. Diligent hearing of the Word. Diligent obeying of the Word. Not only hearers, but doers of the Word, as James tells us. I exhort you to put off imprudence, the lack of prudence, lack of preparation for the future, and put on prudence. And this is what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 5, 15-17. See then that you walk circumspectly, That is, cautiously and prudently, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And I exhort you to this specifically, dear Christians, in your observation of the Christian Sabbath. We as confessional Baptists confess that we believe Scripture teaches that the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is the Christian Sabbath, that the whole day is to be set aside as holy unto the Lord. And we confess in chapter 22, paragraph 8 of our confession about the Christian Sabbath, and this simply is summarizing what Scripture teaches. This is the way we put it. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand... Do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. One of the pastors in our association said this, and it stuck with me, that 90% of observing the Christian Sabbath is that little phrase, ordering their common affairs aforehand or beforehand. That means preparing beforehand and doing whatever works of necessities and mercies that can be done ahead of time so that we don't create extra works to have to do on the Lord's Day. Just imagine it like this. Imagine that your HOA gives you a notice and you have to have your grass cut before Monday or you're going to be fined or something of that nature. Maybe it's a serious fine or maybe you're going to be evicted and you say, oh, I just got this notice. I'm going to have to mow my grass. I'm going to have to go do that work on the Lord's Day. Well, if you'd have done it Friday or Saturday, it it wouldn't be. There'd be no need for it. Ordering all their works beforehand. And we say, well, aren't there works of necessities and mercies? Yes, there are. But a work of necessity is something you can't do yesterday. It's impossible to have done it yesterday, and it's impossible to wait tomorrow. It has to be done right now. Changing a diaper or 
something of that nature, works of necessities and mercy. Well, what about the ox in the ditch? If my ox is in the ditch, doesn't it say that I can get the ox out of the ditch if there's a necessity like that? Yeah, but if, if the fence should have been mun- mended Friday or Saturday and you didn't, and that's why the ox is in the ditch, then we're still culpable, we're responsible, and we're committing sin by creating situations, by lack of prudence, lack of planning beforehand. We're sinning against God in the fourth commandment, and we need to repent of it. One other scenario of this is on Lord's Day when we're, we're getting ready to go and, and everything's just an absolute chaos and we're trying to tie all these loose ends together that could have been prepared beforehand and that would help us more focus on the worship of God. And I say this not at all, dear believer, to discourage you, but to encourage you to repent of imprudence and put on prudence by the grace of God and looking unto Christ who never failed to prepare. Put off omission or neglect and put on obedience. And in all this, dear Christians, put on love and patience with each other because whatever sins you see in your brother and sister, you can just know all the time I have unintentional sins I don't even see right now that God is going to reveal to me. And when he does, or when my brother and sister points it out, I want to be treated with grace and mercy. And oh, how I want God to have mercy upon me. And I trust and I know that he will have mercy on me in Christ. So I want to extend mercy to others as they grow in sanctification. And I remind you today in this to take hope. What they were not able to do on St. Lawrence Island, they were not able to fully reverse the effects of the pollution. Christ is going to do spiritually at his return when we will dwell in a new heaven, a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And as Paul talks about the whole creation groans and longs for that day. And we as Christians long for that day when we'll be renewed. Christ will, by his once for all sacrifice for sin through his death and resurrection, he will reverse all the pollution of sin forever. And you will live in an untainted and sinless condition in eternal joy with God and with His people forever. And I encourage you to look and long for this day as you seek to repent of and be purified by the blood of Christ from unintentional sin now. And oh, I remind you, dear sinner, today, those of you who are still outside of Christ, I hope you get a little more of a picture of just how sinful you are. Not just the sins that you know you've committed, but even ones that you didn't realize and maybe you didn't even do it on purpose. You're still held guilty before God and your entire life is a pollution of God's holy space. And God is highly offended. But God in grace and mercy holds forth Christ to you now. Be purified. Be cleansed. Be sprinkled by the blood of Christ this very moment. Trust in Him and look to Him. And you'll hear these wonderful words that He is your atonement and your sins are forgiven you. Amen.